0: Good morning, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you overshadow us with your spirit, that it would be unto us according to your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. So we're preaching through the parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told his listeners to open up reality in a new way. And in our passage today, we've got a parable commonly known as the parable of the rich fool that Jesus offers as a secondary illustration of a straightforward teaching that he's already given. He's responding to a guy in a crowd who's asked Jesus to intervene in a dispute about family finances. The the man wants Jesus to tell his brother to divide an inheritance with him. And Jesus says no, and then he pivots to the crowd and uses the guy's request as a teachable moment about greed. You see that teaching in verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he tells the parable to illuminate that teaching. So what I want to do today is first unpack the teaching because though it's straightforward, it's actually more complex than it looks at first blush. And second, to explore the parable. So first, the teaching in verse 15. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, if I read through this quickly, I may think, oh, yes, don't be greedy. Life's not about stuff. I get it. But while that's true, that only scratches the surface of the meaning. Because what Jesus is saying here points to the deepest psycho-spiritual operations of the human heart. Let me show you what I mean. Look at how Jesus talks about greed. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Is that how you think about greed? As something you have to look out for? Be on guard against? Something that might ambush you? This is an accidental language. Jesus doesn't speak carelessly. The way Jesus is talking here, greed sounds like something that can sneak up on you and take you by surprise, come at you in a way that you're not expecting. And when you think about that, it's important because you realize that greed, acquisitive desire, isn't something that happens at the top level of our thinking, so to speak. Greed isn't a conscious desire. It's not something you think about being or doing. Nobody wakes up and thinks, I'm gonna be greedy today, like, hey, what do you have on today? Oh, you know, gotta get some groceries, probably gonna hit the gym, gonna covet, uh, be a little greedy, afterwards maybe stop at a patio. Nobody talks like that, and in the same way, Jesus never says, watch out, watch out, be on guard against doing crimes, because crime is bad, but it's something you decide to do. You don't suddenly find yourself robbing a bank, but, but greed is different at least according to Jesus. Greed is something that can catch you unaware, so you have to be on the lookout for it. Take care, be on guard against it, Jesus says, because if you're not looking out for it, your heart can be greedy. It can be acquisitive. It can drive your actions. And the implication is that's what's happening with this poor sap in the crowd who asked about the inheritance. Remember, the gospel doesn't tell us about his circumstances. Maybe the guy's got a good case, Maybe his brother is being unfair or not. We don't know. And what Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter. We don't need to know. The circumstances don't justify whatever's going on in the guy's heart. The point of Jesus' teaching here means that the guy's brother could be being totally unfair. He could be denying him an inheritance that by law is rightfully his. The brother not dividing the inheritance could be a complete miscarriage of justice and... This man who asked the question could be totally in the right, legally speaking, and still be totally in the wrong when it comes to the greed in his own heart. And no post-facto rationalization about his legal right to that inheritance is going to mitigate what's going on in his heart. And Jesus, Jesus is so severe about what he names as greed. When we think about greed, I suspect you would naturally think greed is when you want too much. But there's nothing in the story that says the guy's problem is that he wants too much. The guy's greed, what Jesus names as the man's greed, is simply that he wants more than what he already has. The only thing we know about him is that he's not asking Jesus to tell his brother to give him less of the inheritance. He doesn't need Jesus to help him out with that. So according to Jesus in this context, greed is simply wanting more. Yikes. And the reason Jesus is so severe here about greed is because, as he says in verse 15, we're still only halfway through this verse, life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. Just like the first half of the verse, the the wording here is so important. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Consist in. What's that mean? It means that the being, the essence of life, isn't in having an abundance of things. Or put it another way, if you think spatially, abundant possessions aren't where life is. They're not where life happens. And of course, we know that, but it's still important to hear it and to stare it in the face, because even though we know life isn't in the stuff that we have, it sure is easy to fall into living that way to live as though our lives were in the stuff. That's tempting. You can live in the illusion that life is out here. It's in the externals and what you've got and what you wear, what you drive, where you live rather than in here where life really is in your heart's relationship to the giver of life. Watch out that your heart isn't greedy, Jesus says, because greed will distract you from what life's really about, from where life truly is. And that's the teaching that Jesus then pivots to illustrate this parable. So let's turn to that story, the story that I'm going to call The Parable of the Decent Strategic Plan. So the story begins. There's a rich guy who has land that produces abundantly. And off the bat, it's so telling the way Jesus frames this. The man is a rich man, but his riches consist in possessing something that he doesn't make happen. He has land, and the land produces the crops, not the man. He doesn't make wheat out of thin air. Now, I'm sure he tended the land or paid people to, but what makes him rich, his relationship to this abundance, is one of claiming, this is my land, not your land. Stewardship, taking care of the land, and then receiving He receives what the land produces for his gain. For his gain, that's important because look at what Jesus says next. A good crop, which is a good thing, presents a problem for the man. Why is a good crop a bad thing? Why is a good crop a problem? Because he thinks I have more crops than I can store. Again, it's fascinating and telling. Here's the situation. The land has yielded more crops than this particular man has space in his barns. This is not essentially a problem. The discrepancy between crop volume and barn size is only a problem because he wants to keep it. He wants to keep the crops. What shall I do, he says to himself. And here one immediately viable answer is, give away everything that you can't store, or all of it. Problem solved before it even begins. But that thought doesn't even seem to occur to him. This is why Jesus says you've got to be on guard against greed, because it's not just that there's going to be a greedy choice and a generous choice, and he chooses wrongly. It's that his desire for more, his greed, has set limits to the possibilities that he can even consider. His greed means that he doesn't even. Think of considering the generous option and then rejecting it. He's being steered by a heart that he has ignored, a heart that says, I need the more. There's a situation, more crops than barns, that he perceives as a problem because his heart wants more. I know what I'll do, he says, I'll build bigger barns, which is a pretty decent strategic plan. It's what a lot of us would do, right? You get a financial windfall. Your great-great-uncle lies, leaves you an unexpected inheritance way more than you need. So what do you do? You you pay off your high-interest credit card debt or you find a high-yield investment account. You make your money work for you. That's just smart, right? You make your money work for you so you can have more, just like the guy in the parable with this decent strategic plan. Anyway, look at what happens next. I'll build these barns. And I'll say to my soul, soul, I love that. I want to start talking that way. Soul, you feel like pizza diet? Sounds good, Tyler. Soul, you've got enough goods for many years, so relax. Enjoy the good things in life. Drink, food, parties. It's so fascinating how Jesus is showing us this guy's psycho-spiritual workings in a quite literal sense. The Greek word translated here as soul is suke, the, the root of our word psychology, psyche. And there's an evocative connection there, this ancient and modern shared understanding, a soul, a psyche that at our core is a mess of motivations and passions, and it drives us to do things, and it's so often opaque to us, so often hidden from us, what's at our very core. The man says to his soul, soul, relax. And what Jesus is revealing here is that what's hidden under greed, the desire for more, is a fundamental anxiety because the rich man's response to this abundance is to say to his soul, now you can relax. Now that he has enough stuff, he doesn't have to worry. But as we've heard, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. And what we see here is the man living his life in anxiety or relaxation in relationship to his abundance But here's the thing. Maybe next year the guy has a bumper crop too, so he needs to build even bigger barns. And this could go on and on and on, right? Because the amount that one man can acquire and hold is potentially limitless. How much can one person have? Well, that question is really how much can one person live? Because as it turns out, the only final limit to acquisition is death. But God said to the man, fool, this very night your life, the word translated life here is suke, soul, the very soul that the man was just reassuring. This very night your soul will be demanded of you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What Jesus is showing us in this parable is that greed is the desire for more, and that our desire for more stuff is actually a proxy for that one desire that we have no power to attain, which is our desire for more time. And underneath that desire for more time is the fundamental anxiety that I am alive today, but someday I will be dead. The ultimate fruitlessness of our desire for more stuff is finally revealed by the uncertain finitude of our lives. That when our time is up, all the more that we've acquired will go to someone else who follows us. And in the same way, there's nothing we have that wasn't built from what we received from those who came before us. My death is the final limit to the more that I desire. And God calls the man in the parable a fool because he doesn't realize that. The very crops that he didn't even think about giving away are going to belong to somebody else tomorrow anyway. So it is, Jesus concludes with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. What does that mean, rich toward God? It's a puzzling phrase, but the rest of the gospel makes it clear. The only way to hold on to wealth forever is to give it away to those in need. St. Augustine, the great early theologian, said, the bellies of the poor are better storehouses than barns. To give wealth to the needy is to deposit it into your account in the bank of heaven. Says so right in the Bible, Luke twelve thirty three. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and provide yourself with treasure in heaven that does not fail. And if your heart genuinely doesn't want more, if you're genuinely on guard against greed, what's stopping you? Listen, I know this is a hard teaching, and it's tempting to want to water it down to. Defang it to find a way out. Like, man, Jeff Bezos should listen to this parable. Glad I'm not too rich. Almost nobody thinks they're too rich. Like, I'm a priest and my wife is a professor. We do fine, but we're not rich, I like to think. But we own a house. And in that house, I have many faucets from which come an unlimited supply of potable water. So I'm kidding myself if I think I'm not living better than almost everybody else who has ever walked the face of the earth. I've definitely got a better quality of life than that rich fool, the guy with a decent strategic plan. What more do I need? You wanna hear a really terrible story? So we're doing some work on our house. Uh, It's uh, that house that we own. It's uh, really old, and the floorboards have been sanded a million times, and now they're super thin, and they're starting to break. So, new floor. But as long as we're having that work done, we thought we'd make some other upgrades, and one thing leads to another, and now we've got a big renovation. More, more, more. Bigger barns, right? And last week, as I was preparing this sermon, I had to pause to make a decision about the new floorboards. So I literally put down my Bible and picked up two samples from the flooring company, which were two pieces of wood that were both brown. And one color was called Rhine, like the river in Germany, and the other was called Avon, like the river in England. And here I am prepping a sermon about being on guard against all kinds of greed because none of our stuff lasts. And in the middle of it, I'm making a decision about what kind of new floor to put into my house, my house that I can make colder or hotter at the touch of a button. And here's the painful twist. We bought this house from a fairly young widow. She and her husband had intended to live there for the rest of their lives. But then he got sick, and she didn't want to stay there after he was gone, and that's how we got it. This house that other people had prepared for themselves. So I read this parable, and I don't feel like a guy who's rich, but who am I kidding? This is a parable about me. This is a parable about far more of us than we would like to admit, and the primary difference between you and me and the guy with a decent strategic plan in the story is that we didn't die last night. Am I ever going to walk on those floorboards? I hope so. And you know what? I picked the Rhine. It was a lovely color, nice honey undertones. And then I went back to this sermon. So what do I do with that? Really? Am I I just a rank hypocrite? I mean, I need to leave open the genuine possibility that that could just be the case. I wanted this sermon to be about gratitude. Like, that's the point. Be grateful to the giver of all good gifts, but trust somebody who knows. You can be greedy and grateful at the same time. I want to make this parable not threatening to me. I want to be okay with it. Like, me and the parable were good, but I can't. So where I finally land is the extremely unpleasant place of having to admit that I have preached what I believe to be the truth of this gospel to you, and also that I have completely failed to live up to it in my own life this week. And the thing about the Christian life is that the virtual inevitability of failure doesn't make it okay. The fact that Christian life is ongoing repentance, turning and returning to God doesn't make it okay that we turn away from God in the first place. It's just God's mercy that takes us back. So where do we go with this parable? Well, for me, I land in the tension between the message and my own practice. And in that tension, here's finally the good news. And it's good like a surgeon's scalpel is good. The good news is that our lives consist not in the abundance of possessions, but in God's grace. And that grace takes many forms, not least of which is time. Time is grace as chronology. Whatever time you have, and none of us knows how much it is, isn't given as time so we can live it up. It's time to amend our lives. It's time that's given so that we have the chance to conform ourselves to the Savior who saved all our lives by giving up everything that he had. It's time given for us to follow his example in our own small way by depositing what we have on earth into the vault of heaven by giving it away while we still have time to give it. It's time, it's grace that's been given so that we can get rich according to God. That's grace. That's what our lives consist in. Make use of it. Because the hour is coming for you and for me, and none of us knows when, and for most of us it will be far sooner than we like. And when it does, I really hope that I will not hear, you fool. Amen.